Welcome to the IOSX podcast, where we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension our own, a better place. We'll explore how they are bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. Today's guest is Professor John Okunju. He's the Professor of Digital Engineering for the Centre for Digital Engineering and Manufacturing at Cranfield, and we'll talk a little bit to him about what that means in due course. Today's episode really blew my mind. John was talking about the emergencies that we all face and the role that technology can do to enable us to respond faster to more complex challenges, but also about the need for empathy between robots and humans. But the big thing that got me on this episode is augmented reality and how it isn't just thinking about augmented reality as visual, but all of the senses, touch and hearing, and the concept of e-noses is one that will stay with me for some time. So here's today's episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. John, one of the things I want to do uh, right up top is uh, get you to help me define some terms. So you're the professor of digital engineering at the Centre for Digital Engineering and Manufacture at Cranfield. Walk me through, what is digital engineering for you? Thanks, Ali. Um, so digital engineering is a process where you're turning different types of data into a digital format which can be consumed in various formats. Could be in 3D visualization, could be various other ways where you're actually able to make better decisions. So it's probably moving towards repeatability and trying to make better access to data and maybe simulation and maybe visualization. So it's really the whole process of using data in a meaningful way. And this is a, a new center, right? I mean, like, I, I mean, how new is it? So I founded it just over two years ago. The purpose really was looking at complex engineered assets, planes, tanks, ships, complex things that have a long life cycle where they make a significant contribution to the economy. We've been talking to different companies, different organizations in this space, and we saw that there's lots of opportunities to make better use of the data, the simulation that we have, and to improve on lots of different challenges like productivity, like failures, that how we manage failures in these assets, looking at things like life extensions. They're all complex challenges, but we could make better use of data and simulation to enhance value. I, I think that's brilliant. And I, I think it's relatively easy to understand a complex asset at that kind of tank, plane, ship. But you've also worked with bioscience and, and kind of healthcare providers. And I know, I know NHS is someone that's been involved in what yep. you're doing. Where do they sit? I mean, because it's harder to see perhaps quite what a complex asset is in that yeah. sphere. I mean, it's not necessarily only a complex asset. Let me broaden it. It could also be a complex process. Excellent. So if we look at NHS, there are lots of complex processes in the sense of planning for queues in hospitals, planning for queues in maybe local GPs. So we're looking at maybe learning from those situations in complex assets and applying it to complex processes. What we see is that we're again looking at resources. We're looking at optimizing resources like people, like maybe material flow. 
like facilities in terms of how we're using facilities. So all these things are actually quite common. So the principles can be applied to NHS, it can be applied to pharmaceutical in the sense of manufacturing, how we're managing things in factories. They're all really common, actually, and we'll be surprised with how these methods can be applicable across sectors. And I think that's another thing which is really exciting in terms of how we can learn from each other and bring together different sectors. I think that's phenomenal. I actually heard just recently um, someone talking about bed space in the NHS and how there had been a school of thought that was just, we just need more and more Mm. beds is better. Mm -hmm. And actually it was more similar to your point about the cross sector Mm. to don't just build more roads to try and reduce car flow. Mm. More roads actually mean more cars Mm -hmm. and more beds actually means more people in hospital Mm -hmm. rather than looking at the complexity of the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that rings true for you? Very much so. It goes back to even principles from economics in the sense of we're trying to balance supply and demand. We focus so much on supply, making sure we've got enough spares, we've got enough people, but we forget about planning for demand. Because if we don't understand demand properly, we have extra uncertainty that we're trying to deal with in the supply side. You know, like a hospital might say, I must have all the materials available all the time. Yeah. But what's interesting there is some of those items are not used regularly. Like I've heard numerous times a machine, they've spent a lot of money on the machine, but it's not being used because it's so niche that it's sitting in the corner for like three years and no one's using it. This has happened across sectors. I've got examples in defense sector where people talk about obsolescence being a huge challenge. Yeah. People often do lifetime buys. Now, the challenge with lifetime buys is that how do you define the life cycle? There was one instance where there was a helicopter and they did a lifetime buy for 20 years and they hadn't planned it, but there was an upgrade three years into that. So all the parts beyond the three years were a waste. So so when you're talking about a lifetime buy in the helicopter, they're saying, right, we'll buy the main asset and we'll buy the spares and all the bits and pieces we will need for the 20 year planned life cycle of it and then three years in we've done an upgrade they don't fit together they're all out of date wow so again that's about demand so they've changed the use needs that means they've maybe done some upgrade because there's a new technology or some kind of new use that they've realized and as an outcome the demand has influenced the supply supply meaning the parts that we have so Coming back to your question, supply and demand, we've got to really think about that to be able to balance these things. So, I mean, one of the things that I love about this is the holistic uh, timeline of it. You know, not, not just holistic in terms of at a point in time, how does it all fit together? But the, at the point that you're manufacturing, at the point that you're supplying parts, at the point that you're consuming them, you know, future plans, mm-hmm. you know, what might happen, and embracing the complexity of that, you know, not trying to say, well, let's make it a really simple linear workflow, but actually mm-hmm. embrace the complexity of saying this is the reality is this all plays a part and is mm-hmm. and is all influence. Mm-hmm. And was that front and center for you when you were setting the center up? I mean, because I think it's fascinating that you set the center up. I mean, you were already at Cranfield looking at through life engineering and then mm-hmm. took the action to set up a new center focused on this digital engineering manufacturer. I think for me, The angle here was that we do want to understand the through life. I think that's critical. 
But the question is, in terms of how can we do this? You know, if we look at people talking about digital twins, artificial intelligence, ontologies, all these kind of words that people are using these days. But the question is, how do we use these in meaningful ways? So the center, when we set it up, was really about trying to tackle these key challenges, key questions, by using the right methods in the right places. So we've got to have this sort of mapping and matching between the methods, the processes, and tools and people all together in a way that we're solving problems in, a, in an efficient and effective way. There seems to still be challenges from these angles where we're trying to find a solution fit a problem, whereas defining a problem and then exploring what would be the suitable approach is what we're trying to do. You know, we, we've started a new master's course as well in this space. The first thing we're teaching people is to take a step back and to define requirements, define the problems properly. And this is nothing new, but we really need to focus on changing the mindset. And it's not an easy thing. So I think we've got to work together. I think education plays a key role in that process, but we've also got to think of this holistically. So companies, they're recruiting people, We've got to change the processes that we're taking to be able to justify new technologies. We need to shift away from saying, I really want an augmented reality solution too. I've got a problem. One of the options to be able to solve that is augmented reality. Let's explore. Can we justify it? And I think that's really critical in terms of the shift in the mindset. And without being too blunt about it, why does this matter to you? Like, What, what, what is it that John drives John? So... What I really want to achieve is, is about making the most of these new emerging technologies. So things like digital twins, I think they have a role. Things like augmented reality, they have a, a significant place in making a change. Things like machine learning. There are many companies that are saying, where do I use this? How do I make a difference in my organization? So that's where I'd like to play a role in terms of facilitating the adoption of digital technologies. I mean, we've been working on AR for over 10 years, probably about 12, 13 years. And what we're seeing is that it's coming in the visualization space. So you do need to do your simulation. You do need to look at that sort of predictive element, define the optimization. It's more a, a tool for communication. So we've seen three different areas where you can use augmented reality. The, one is, the first one is in terms of different tasks that people are involved in. How can you improve the efficiency in those tasks? So things like diagnosis, things like assembly, disassembly. So from there, I mean, based on different studies we've done, we've reached something like 30, 35% improvement in time to deliver different tasks. And, and sorry, just to interrupt, uh, we'll come back to the other two. Um, this is when you're doing assembly or disassembly, having an an overlay of, of AR. I mean, just yes. could you so just to expl explain, yeah, absolutely. So this is where we're overlaying. Maybe maybe it's using various kind of uh, head-mounted devices or tablets. I won't name any particular brand. But, <laughs> sure, but but it's really about providing information at the point of need. So if I'm a maintainer, I'm looking at an asset, 
I now want to have access to various types of data. It could be the user manual. It could be some data from the sensors where it's telling me the various trends in terms of heat, uh, the, the temperature, vibration. It could be maybe the, the history in terms of what has been done to the asset, what sort of repair has, under, has been undertaken. Now, what augmented reality can do is share that information. We can start to visualize it. And I think the other sort of aspect here is, for example, how do we bring a user manual into life? So animations. Yeah. So if I look at a user manual, and let's say the kind of use cases we've seen where there's maybe a bit more interest as well is where maintenance is needed on assets that don't break down that often. Right. So, so things like every three, four years, I don't remember how I did this. Um, in that sort of scenario, giving some guidance, giving some support in the process really adds value. If this is something that the person's been doing every single day, it's the same problem, same thing, maybe it's not the best thing to use augmented reality. So really it's about thinking of where it's maybe a complex task, it's tricky, it's error prone, maybe it has safety issues. In those kind of environments, it's it's potentially a good option to consider. I really like that that example of it being something that isn't muscle memory. Yeah, because you know, if you're servicing something every day, great, yeah. wonderful, you know, I may not even think about it. I may I may just yeah. quietly do the the top 10 diagnostic things instinctively yeah. but if it's something that i'm only seeing every three or four years i may not even have been here the last yeah. time it 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 broke or needed servicing or whatever else exactly so so that's one one sort of use scenario we've seen um the second area was actually about we consider augmented reality as a way to present information but what if we used augmented reality as a way to collect information Ooh, so go on. The, the, the context is, and we've, we've done a PhD project uh, here on this, looking at how do we capture tacit knowledge? So a person, someone that's been doing maintenance a long time, they've accumulated a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of questions today in terms of how do we, and this is common across sectors, how do we actually learn from these knowledgeable people? How do we share the tacit knowledge across the organization. So so these are individuals who, I mean, I just mentioned the kind of muscle memory bit, but it, it might be that kind of, that more art than science of, I just do this bit over here, or I just know to tweak it or touch it, yeah. or is that sort of thing we're talking exactly. about? Exactly, I mean, we've had situations where the maintainer has found a better way to do maintenance than what was suggested in the user manual. Right. So because of that improvement they've, they've sort of made, they've saved lots of time. So how do we capture that? And with augmented reality, the way we've sort of looked at it is we can capture visually what that person's doing. We can also do voice to text type um, information capture from the individual. And we can also collect information where they maybe write a report digitally into our database that's accessible with augmented reality. So it's bringing together different senses. And I think this is something also with augmented reality, something that we're really excited about is we're not just interested in vision-based mm -hmm. overlay. What about sound? Right. What about smell? You know, what about the feeling of touch? So a maintainer, when they go to an asset, 
you know, one of the first things they do is, yes, they look at the asset, but they also do other things. They might smell. They might touch the surface of different assets. Oh, that's brilliant. And how do we bring all these skills together? We're far from it. And that's where we want to get to with augmented reality, virtual reality, because there's so much information, knowledge that we're missing out on by focusing just on vision-based approaches. And I think that's just a brilliant uh, capture of these amazing human skills we have. I remember there was a study done out of MIT about how small an imperfection you can sense with touch, you know, the, the things that couldn't easily be seen. Yeah. At, a, at an incredible microscopic level, people were able to say, yeah, this isn't right, it's got an imperfection in it. And the idea that you could capture that using technology is is phenomenal. Exactly. I mean, a few years ago, we did a smell uh, a smell oriented study so they're called e-noses oh my god i love it that never you know <laughs> so the the focus there is can we detect a smell right and characterize it and the context we looked at was degradation assessment and what we did was remotely can we use a robot to be our nose so it smells whether there's any kind of burnt smell right in the wires or in the engine. <clears throat> and from there, we can remotely start to give instructions to the robot to do different kinds of diagnosis. And where we want to take that is to go beyond and look at repair. How do we actually fix things using a robot remotely? So let's say my local expert is seated in London. I have a plane in the Middle East. Currently what happens is I have to send my expert, who is expensive, yep. long distances, and the person's out for days to fix something that maybe takes 10 minutes, an hour. So we're trying to move that problem out by using robots or by creating this communication platform using augmented reality where remotely we can give the instructions to the local team. And, and um, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of burning in wires and, and that kind of thing. I'm having a flash to a memory of a thing about um, uh, non-human noses. So dogs' noses mm -hmm. potentially having healthcare application. Yeah, there was a kind of, there, there's, a, there's a nascent, I think nascent, idea that there are uh, non-detectable by human smells that actually may be indicative of certain conditions or, or whatever else. I mean, do we see an e-nose type approach for those kind of healthcare or bioscience? I wish. I, wish. I mean, we personally haven't done that kind of research. We've looked at human, replicating human nose capabilities. But, uh, I mean, I think the applications could be huge. Yeah. That would be a really impactful, useful thing where it takes it beyond our human capabilities. Um, and uh, particularly... And I'm wondering, I don't know, I've heard it for earthquakes and things like that, where, where the, the dogs maybe um, realize things before, um, where, whether there's senses that we could learn from them and then alert uh, people. That, the, that would well, I mean, be... this, this idea that you're, what you're enabling with this facilitation and approach, bringing, you know, using... Uh, the simulation and the twins and the interoperation and the a uh, AR and VR. And, but the idea that you're augmenting senses 
and they, those might go beyond human senses or or to levels that humans aren't particularly good at. I mean, there's that brilliant Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, where it's like actually experts aren't great at self-assessing that what's wrong. You know, they put these fake statues in front of experts and they're like, well, that's fake. So, well, why is it fake? I can't tell you why it's fake, but I know mm-hmm. from touch and smell and, and, and look and sound and everything that that's definitely fake. So the idea that you can capture some of that and recreate it, and mm-hmm. deploy it remotely or in, in areas that mm-hmm. that may not, be, I think is is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So we, we've spoken about tasks, we've spoken about the gathering of information. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a, a third use? So for- there's a third uh, in particular around training. Right. So particularly, how do we train people? How do we upskill people? And one example we had was um, cherry picker manufacturer. So the context that they were working in was that they had so much demand that they couldn't actually recruit people in a timely way. Right. So what was happening was that they were bringing people into the factory shop floor with very limited training. Right. Because they just couldn't keep up with demand. But the problem in that situation was that um, there were lots of errors because people weren't necessarily trained sufficiently. So the question we had was, could augmented reality assist people and you could still put them into the shop floor with limited training, but could augmented reality alert them when they make a mistake? So so I find this fascinating again, because one of the things that you hear out in the world is skills drains and people aging out of workforces and that kind mm-hmm. of someone's been in a job for 30 years and has all the tacit knowledge and everything else and, and may not be around to mm-hmm. train yeah, there's, there was a big thing uh, during the pandemic about people taking early retirement or, or stepping away from roles and not going back. So would this be a way of... This could of, be of, a way. Uh, okay. Exactly, because if we can design the guidance together with the experienced people, we're taking their knowledge and putting it into a system which will be accessible by those that will need it. So I do see a place for this And uh, I think it could really be impactful, not necessarily in the long term, but in the short term. And presumably you'd also have the ability to take localized expertise to train people in either other areas or other sectors or whatever else it might be, where you would previously not just have had, as we spoke on the last one, the kind of your maintenance expert who had to fly around the world, but also the training side, you know, actually, oh, we can spin up a new factory or a new hospital without having to go out and train all the staff fresh and, and, and you know, spend a long time trying to get going. And I wonder if that would lead to applications in in emergency. So like you say, not necessarily the long term, but the emergency kind of, oh, something that is quite infrequent, for example, tragically, things like earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Can we train up local populations quickly mm-hmm. without having to fly in mm-hmm. experts and, and so on? Is that? I think this is a great use case because, as I said earlier, I think we're aspiring to have resilience. We're aspiring to have an agile approach, responsive approach, flexible approach. I think digital engineering plays the role to facilitate that. If we leave it to manual processes, we're not able to make mass changes. It's about reaching to a lot of people. I mean, if you look at ChatGPT, it's probably one of the fastest adoptions in humankind yeah. in terms of technology. 
again, this is an example where we can make a huge change a lot faster. So, you know, I think in particular in situations where there's an emergency, we need technologies that can help in a very fast manner. So in that, you know, we need to think about human factors. We need to think about um, the way people can use these devices intuitively. Mm -hmm. We need to think about things like uncertainty of course. in that as well. So it all needs to be considered in a holistic way. And I think this is also, if I look at research and if I look at the way projects are being funded, we're seeing a lot more emphasis in terms of looking at problems in a multidisciplinary way. I, I, I love that, that the multidisciplinary bit paired with the socio-technical, you know, the human factors and the technologies and, and how they function feels to me like not only the future, but an absolute requirement when you have both those emergency situations you mentioned and to accidentally uh, use a horribly ugly phrase, but the kind of meta emergencies. You know, we, we there was a report just out recently that climate change and climate resilience has got to a no, but seriously, we have to act now. You know, this isn't a 30, 40 mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Let's think about how we might work it. Um, do you see those kind of meta emergencies, but the kind of large, complex, systemic challenges that we all face? Are they also a, a prime use case for this? Hugely. Right. Hugely. I mean, you know, net zero, sustainability is here. We need to do things. We need to change things. Um, and I think, for me, we're focusing a lot on the supply side, again, to deal with sustainability. But the reality is, that's far from enough. Right. We need to think of how do we manage the demand? in the sense of, do we really need to buy more things? Do we really need to? So things like life extensions for assets yep. are perfect because we're not we're preventing the need to buy more assets. And we're, we're not necessarily using the full life cycle in many instances for parts. That's because we're, we're not planning demand properly. So I think it all again comes well, I together. Mean, I'm, I'm reflecting back on when you were saying about the helicopter bought for 20 years, do whole life buy is that yeah. that's the whole life buy yeah not only is it a cost impact that all those spares were obsolete after mm -hmm. three years mm -hmm. but the sustainability impact of you know your planned sustainability your planned impact yeah. has, has just been reduced by 17 year, exactly. years and, and you've got to rebuy them all exactly so the, the the sort of angle i'm looking at it as is that digital engineering can help with planning demand yeah it's not just supply you know you might be the best at planning supply side but if it's not going to be needed if you don't have the requirement all your plans are going to be inefficient you're going to have waste and we i think moving forward we've really got to think about how do we minimize waste in every sense yeah this isn't just about energy consumption we also need to think about skills and people you know, for me, sustainability, one of the angles is social. Of course. So it's not just environmental impact. We need to think of this holistically, you know, the three dimensions, economic, social, environmental. We've got to make the trade-offs between these things. There's a term called absolute sustainability that's being used a lot today. And that's what that's referring to is how do we actually become neutral in terms of the resources that we're using? 
globally. Now we're not there yet. There's but, but, so but, much to be done. And I and and is that is that for you the direction of travel? Because the thing I, I notice is you, you've been at the vanguard of all sorts of technological innovations, all that through life, as I say, an uncertainty from the beginning and recognise the importance of it. But I think a cri- criticism often of things like sustainability and net zero is that they can often be quite blinkered. You know, it's kind of, well, great, we've reduced the environmental impact of this one thing, yep. but we now have factories of people or individuals doing something different. That absolute sustainability, is that the next big hairy goal to address? I think so. And, and I think... With that, we need to think of not necessarily sustainability in manufacturing, not necessarily sustainability in service alone. We've got to look at the life cycle. We've got to consider however long the asset life cycle is and not think of the short-term gains. Um, And this is, again, a huge challenge. Um, How do we do this in a way that makes sense environmentally, socially, and economically? And, And... we still have missing approaches for this. And, I mean, this is a drum that you've been banging, you know, in its various guises for a long time. Are you hopeful? Do you do you retain motivation? I mean, you know, in the face of trying to educate people, trying you talked about changing mindsets, changing approaches, changing the way that the c- consumer and uh, commercial models work. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain your drive? Mm-hmm. Do you maintain your drive? Are you hopeful that we can get there? I am hopeful, but I think we've got to put people at the center. We've got to put organizations at the center in a way that the incentives are right. Right. Okay. Because today we're still in a model, in a in a kind of model, commercial model, where maybe the economic outcomes are the primary interest. Okay. Now, how do we get to a model where considering environmental outcomes and social outcomes lead to economic outcomes as well? And I think, I don't think there are many, I I think there's a number of examples that are coming out, which is really promising. Sure. But I think we've got to think of these as well and think about awareness. So just as an example, I asked some companies recently about what's their environmental strategy and the response was solely to improve existing processes right in terms of efficiency of existing processes so that was so, the strategy so doing the same things differently just not doing different things exactly yeah. yeah just improving so that was the strategy in a number of large organizations so i think we're looking at this as an incremental change rather than thinking like taking a step back like same for digital twins i think this isn't about in a way making an incremental change to your existing processes this is a fundamental change in the way you look at systems the way you make decisions the way you sort of integrate things yeah and this is where we've got to take a step back and think about how do we make this change in a strategic way and if we do this in a strategic way we're going to get a lot more impact from all these dimensions. And and it's it's not easy, but I think skills is key here. And um, we've got to move away from these short-term focused gains. I, I think that's a brilliant vision, uh, fantastically articulated. 
thank you. And I'm, I, you know, anything we can do to support, <laughs> I'm wholly behind it. Um, because I think, I think even if you're, even if you're only interested in the economic value, you, you know, either in your function or as an individual, that's just how you think. I don't understand how you don't see that taking all those other dimensions of value you spoke about is is to your benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw this in the Industrial Revolution with things like the Cadbury factory. You know, if we educate our workers, if we make sure they're happy and healthy, if we keep them entertained, you know, like this benefits me in my production of chocolate bars. Uh, over in Friedrichshafen in Germany, uh, uh, Zeppelin did a similar thing. You know, I, I will build universities. I will build uh, civil infrastructure because it is to the benefit of all that we are happy and healthy and, and, and the environment's looked after and so on. I mean, it's interesting if you look at things like depression, things like life expectancy. Over the past 10, 15 years, 20 years, in many developed countries, these are not very positive. Um, So I do think we've got to sort of connect the way we're living our lives and all these different constructs for commercial, economic angles and 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 see how we can build this system of system perspective to improve quality of life and i think it's possible by by applying these technologies properly i think that's fantastic john i've loved the conversation i'm i'm interested in for you personally kind of if there's a if there's a where next like what do you what do you want to do next what's the what's the big uh not necessarily the goal at that holistic level which we absolutely should be solving but for john himself you know what what do you see next what's the next big uh windmill you're going to tilt at so we're looking at aspects like whole system well-being so okay. what we mean with that is and this is i guess what industry 5.0 is being referred to as right okay where you know we're moving from 4.0 to 5.0 and i guess what that's saying is where we, we've got all these different technologies. We've got automation, we've got sensors, we've got machines, robots, but we've also got people in the system. And we're going to have people. We're, we must never forget that. We're going <laughs> to have people in these systems in the future, even if we have loads of robots, there will still be a role for people. So how do we make these systems interact together in a happy way in a, in an efficient in a in a in a in a way that we're extending the life we're we're productive we're contributing environmentally commercially socially and it, we're working together in a win-win scenario but how do we create this win-win scenario right um so things like you know we think a lot about let's say the human um being affected by the robot in in a workstation yeah. let's say what if how do we create this context where i realize the weaknesses of the robot okay and the robot realizes the weaknesses of the human now <laughs> okay no, so, so empathy how do we have empathy how do we create this context where we're supporting and and so and this human is technology mean. empathy yes I love it. So, so if Industry 4.0 was bringing together lots of different bits of technology, is yes. that a fair? I mean, exactly. I, I realize it's a bit crude. Exactly. Uh, and then Industry 5.0 is then taking that same idea of the kind of interoperation of the technologies, but then sticking people back into it. Yeah. Is that? Exactly. So how do we now make this 
a system that has well-being in the sense of we're happy, we want to continue working, we want to develop, we want to sort of add value in an integrated way. So that's one thing we're really interested in. Um, there's a lot of questions in terms of how to achieve that, what sort of information flow is needed, how do we collect the information, how, how do we use it, how do we provide some feedback. So lots to be done. I think that's an area we're very interested in. And I think digital engineering sits in the center of that to sure, be able to do course. that. Fantastic. Well, uh, John, I mean, I, I love that. The idea of socio-technological em empathy. Well, the increase of empathy generally, I think, would help with yeah, that absolute sustainability. But the idea of getting empathy between technology and people, I think, is absolutely fantastic. I have loved our conversation today. Really appreciate your time. Really, really appreciate you coming in and chatting. What you're doing is blowing my mind. Uh, and I look forward to, to seeing where it goes uh, and seeing the great stuff you do next. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ali. It's been a great discussion. Cheers. Thanks to our guest, Professor John. If you want to know more about the MSc he mentioned, you can find that information at cranfield.ac.uk. Thank you very much to Runway East Studios in Soho, where we recorded. The IOTICS podcast is a Snaffle podcast production. And if you know an inspiring human who's out there making a difference, bringing people and technology together, why not get in touch with us at podcast at iotics.com. Thank you for listening.